Bible, please open it up to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11. Uh, You could find this on page uh, 583 if you're using one of the Bibles that you snagged on your way in this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love it if you took that home with you and dove into it. And if you've never read the Bible before, I always encourage people, the Gospel of John in the New Testament is like the best place to start. Uh, And so go ahead and grab that Bible and open it up. Uh, We've been walking uh, through the seven signs of Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus does uh, seven miracles. He did a lot more miracles than that in his life, but John strategically placed seven miracles that Jesus did in his gospel account. And he said he did this so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so we've seen Jesus do tremendous things over the last six weeks. Um, And this seventh sign that we're looking at this morning uh, is just undisputed. It's the preeminent sign. It is the most amazing thing that Jesus ever did in all of these signs. And in this sign, we see that Jesus doesn't just overcome sickness. He doesn't just remove someone's blindness. He doesn't just heal somebody with a word or make someone stand up and walk. He doesn't just satisfy people's hunger or, uh, you know, fulfill their lacking of joy, which are all these things that we've seen Jesus do. But here in this story this morning, what we see is that Jesus overcomes death itself. I mean, you can't get uh, more amazing than that, right? Like Jesus shows you this morning that he is the king of death, that even death has no say over what Jesus can and can't do. And so John chapter 11 is where we're hanging out this morning, and we have this incredible story um, of Jesus and his interaction with this family. It's a family that he loves dearly, okay? It's, It's two sisters, Martha and Mary, and their brother Lazarus. And if you read other parts of the Gospels, you see Jesus constantly in their home. He's in their home, and Martha's always serving him. Mary's always at his feet. At one point, you see Mary in one account. She's weeping over, over Jesus' feet, and her tears actually wash his feet, and she dries his feet with her hair. This is a family that Jesus knew very well. And in some ways, I like to think in our modern times that, that Jesus knew this family so well. He was so close to them that this is the kind of family or the kind of place that you could just walk into any old day, kind of in your sweatpants or something. You know, ladies, you wouldn't be wearing your makeup, you know, to a family like this. Or guys, you would, you would have been showering in like a week, you know. I mean, this is, this is the kind of family, you know, that kind of comfort, you know, that you would experience with certain people uh, that you would walk into. He would be able to walk into these people's house and kind of put his feet up on the table and and help himself in the fridge. You know, Jesus had a comfort with these people. He loved them well. He loved them deeply. And you're actually told that he loved them deeply three times in this one story. You see it in verse 3, verse 5, verse 36, how much he loves them. And yet, here in this story, this brother, Lazarus, his friend, this one he loves deeply, dies. He dies. And we're told that Jesus doesn't even attend the funeral. He misses the funeral. And and we all know that friends just don't miss friends' funerals. You just, you don't do that. And in fact, when Lazarus was sick, and when Jesus heard that he was sick, Jesus actually delayed in coming to save him 
on purpose. You see in verse 5, it says Jesus loved these people, these sisters and this brother. And then it says, starting in verse 6, so, so because he loved them, because he loved them, he delayed in coming to them and he stayed. I'm curious this morning, if you're in a spot, or if you've ever been in a spot where you feel like Jesus has delayed in your life, when you just thought, oh, of course he'll be here, he loves me, and he seems like he's delaying. If you go ahead and you read in verse 4, you see the reason why he delays. The reason why he delays is he says it is for the glory of God. He delays in coming and saving his friend so that God would be glorified, that somehow in, in delaying in his arriving, him not being there is going to bring glory to God, and somehow all of that is tied to his love for his friends, and that's exactly what we see this morning, okay? So Jesus, if you haven't learned yet, he has a, a very different pers perspective on life than you and I do. And so in our moments of wondering why he's delaying, why he hasn't showed up in our life, how does he respond to our sorrow? I think we see that. We see how Jesus responds to us in our sorrow. And we also see how Jesus responds to us or responds actually to that, which brings your greatest sorrow. Those are the two things you'll see. So if you look on the back of your paper branch notes, you can kind of see the roadmap for where we're headed this morning. And so first, I want us to look at how does Jesus respond to us in our sorrow? And I think we get an answer to that when we look at his interaction with these two different sisters. And I want to start with, with Mary this morning, okay? So chapter 11 of John, I'm going to start in verse 17, just to kind of give you the context of what's going on here, the scene here. In verse 17, it says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, uh, sorry, had already been in the tomb four days. So he was dead. Very dead, okay? Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And now, like I said, I want to look at how he responds to Mary. So look over with me in verse uh, 28. Halfway through, Martha comes to Mary, who is back at the house. And he says, the teacher, referring to Jesus, he's here and he's calling for you, Mary. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, well, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That word wept literally means Jesus burst into tears. That's what it means. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So, so when Mary comes to Jesus, we read here that 
she falls at his feet in tears. Okay? She's, she's distraught and weeping. You see that in verse 34. Her world is just shattered, and Jesus goes to the grave with her, and he weeps with her. And for the most part, when our lives are in ruins, by and large, we feel powerless, don't we? And utterly unable to change the circumstances that you and I are facing. Typically, we have no idea why this tragedy is happening in our lives, whether it can be solved or whether it will be solved or eventually if something will change. And so what do we do in our powerlessness? What do we do? We weep. We don't see another alternative. We have no power in the situation. And yet we see Jesus here who knew that very soon from this exact moment where Mary is weeping, he knew very soon he was going to reverse everything that just happened. And he would undo all the sadness in probably about like 15 minutes from this moment. And all this weeping that he's seeing, it's going to turn into dancing. And all this sadness was going to turn into this glorious reunion with, with her brother. And yet Jesus weeps. Why? Why? That like doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense to you? I mean, if I were Jesus and I knew what I was going to do, I, I would feel like I would distance myself from that situation. You know, I'd be like, oh, don't worry, it's fine. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix things, Mary, right? Or it, maybe, maybe you would be somebody who would feel kind of arrogant and prideful, like, oh, come on, stupid Mary, like, I'm Jesus, I can do anything, right? I mean, like, you, you might feel this sort of way, you know, when you think about your abilities and what you can do in the world. And, and so Mary weeps, why? Because she doesn't know the outcome, and she's powerless to do anything. And yet Jesus weeps not because he doesn't know the outcome and not because he's powerless to do anything. He weeps simply because Mary weeps. That's why he weeps. Uh, anyone in here, like, love to cry in front of other people? Anybody? Nobody. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, me either. Right? I hate crying in front of people, and I am pathetic. I'm like a weeper, okay? I'm, I'm a very weepy man, okay? I'll watch, like, I'll watch, like, The Voice, and I get the chin quiver, you know, or, <laughs> or Mighty Ducks or something, and I just lose it. And so, I don't even want to cry in front of my wife. I sit there, I'm just like, don't look at me. You know, I just, it's awkward. I hate crying in front of people. You know, it is an awful feeling, isn't it? Well, why is that? Well, it's because when you weep, you are expressing yourself in a completely vulnerable and empathetic way, aren't you? You're showing that you don't really have it all together. That's what's happening in our crying. And, and none of those things that I just listed, none of those are values in our culture. And so we try to actually avoid situations where we express ourselves in this way. Yet Jesus, the son of God, the most powerful one ever, the one who controls the weather and who can speak and miraculous things happen, allows Mary's sadness and vulnerability to become his own sadness and vulnerability. See, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't fix anything. He doesn't even actually say anything before he cries with her. Right? You see, there are things in the world, I think, that we should cry over. There are sad realities in the world that should cause us to mourn. And I think more than anything, this gives you a picture of how Jesus goes through suffering with you. That might be hard for some of you to realize, okay? But this is not my idea. You see, even when Jesus knows the pain is temporary, he knows what it feels like for you and he weeps with you. He mourns with those who mourns. I mean, that's how I know a friend loves me, right? They weep when I weep. 
So you can already see, uh, Jesus, he can already see the, the beautiful end to your story. He can see that all the suffering that you're experiencing, it's going to one day just be swallowed up in this glorious resurrection of what will someday come and what you will someday experience. But when you've lost someone, as much as you tell yourself that you're going to see them again in eternity, right, it's still painful now. When, when you're lonely and you hurt, it's painful and sometimes what you need is not theological answers. You need the presence of a Savior who feels your pain and weeps with you. And so Jesus in his humanity has experienced all the hardships of life. You see this in, in, this, in the Bible and in all of our, in, in our sorrows he's experienced. He mourns with those who mourns. And some of you this morning, you're walking through very painful things. And you need to know that Jesus mourns with you. But Jesus is also not just a sympathetic savior, as we see a really different reaction to Martha. And we see this uh, starting over in verse 20. We see him confront Martha. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. So Martha comes running out even before Jesus arrives and she confronts Jesus and she says what? In verse 21, she says, Jesus, where were you? Where were you? If you'd only been here. Again, he could have told Martha what he was gonna do. He could have said, oh, hey, Martha, calm down. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix everything. I have a trick up my sleeve. Right? I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is going to bring glory to God, right? And if he had done that, Martha could have run to Mary. Mary's tears could have stopped. And she could have said, hey, Jesus is here. And he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's all going to be okay. But, but it's not the perspective he offers Martha. It's not even the hope that he offers Martha. Look at Jesus' first response to her in verse 23. What does he say to her? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha, she believed that one day there would be consolation for this whole act of suffering. She was a good Jewish person, okay? And Orthodox Jews believed that there would be a resurrection someday. And so she's, you know, spouting off her theology saying, you know, I know this and I know this, but really, Jesus, you know, where were you? Okay, I know these things. So in this moment, her response to Jesus is saying that her brother would rise again. That's, that's communicating that she does believe that there will be some kind of comfort that will come after this loss. It would come in the form of Lazarus being raised from the dead someday, on the last day. And so one day, Martha thinks that she would get Lazarus back and all would be forgotten, but then she has to experience all these years of sadness and suffering until she gets this little consolation. But what Jesus is bringing is not so much consolation to her. He's, he's inviting in her, her into resurrection. He's offering her resurrection. Because look at his response to her theological rambling. It's in verse 25. He said to her, well, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Whoa. 
I mean, seriously, do, do, you, do you see Jesus' claim here? Do you see what he's saying? His comfort that he offers her in this moment is himself. He doesn't go and fix her circumstance. Do you see? Nothing has changed. Okay, nothing has changed, but he just points her to himself and says not that he simply has access to power that can raise people from the dead, and not simply that he has access to life that can bring people to life, but he is the source of resurrection and life. And he plays with his words here, and he wants her to know that this resurrection life does begin after death. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But it also begins now, he says, before death, for those who believe in him. Why? Because he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, Jesus wants her to move her eyes from simply what she wants him to do. She wants him to, he wants her to move her eyes from her circumstance and to put her entire faith, her entire comfort, her entire consolation in him. See, he asks for her belief and he asks for it before he changes any of her circumstances. Let me ask you, is this, is this wrong of Jesus to do this? Is this wrong? Does this sit well with you? I mean, she just lost her brother to death. This is like her worst case scenario coming to fruition. And Jesus confronts her with asking her to believe in him, to find comfort in him, not a changed circumstance. Seemingly worse yet, Jesus lets his dear friends that he loves, worst case scenario, pan out in their life. He lets it happen. See, we all have a worst case scenario, don't we, in life? And maybe it's not even death for you. And some of you may be staring at your worst case scenario this weekend. Maybe you've been wrestling with it this weekend. Maybe you walked into this room this morning with it staring you in the face. Maybe your worst case scenario is that you never want to be alone in life that the thought of ever being alone is just like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. So the thought of somebody abandoning you, the thought of losing somebody else, never having somebody else, just creates a ton of fear and anxiety within you. Maybe your worst case scenario is that people will not validate you in life. There are certain people in your mind, or maybe you can't even picture faces, it's just a crowd of people, and you want them to think you're a worthwhile person. You want them to think you're successful or that you're a somebody. And so if you don't get it, that just crushes you. And when you see other people succeeding in life and being worthwhile people in your eyes, you don't get happy for them. You don't become excited for them. It actually makes you more bitter. You get upset. Or maybe your worst case scenario is that you fear you just won't be able to provide for the people in your life that are going to rely on you. Maybe it's, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your spouse, or maybe it's just like yourself. Maybe that's your worst case scenario. Or maybe it is. Maybe it is a disease that will kill you before you think it's your time to go. Or maybe it's a disease that you think will take the life of somebody that you love deeply before you think it's their time to go. And so the thought of that, that worst case scenario panning out in your life, there is this fear that creeps up inside of you. 
And so maybe this, this morning you're facing your worst case scenario or, or you're staring it in the face, just something, some act of, of sorrow or suffering, and you can't imagine why Jesus would linger, why Jesus would delay, why he wouldn't fix your circumstance or your situation. And I want you to see this morning, Jesus is asking your eyes to move off your circumstance and to rest on him. He's pointing at himself this morning as God and is saying, place your hope in me, place your belief in me. And if you do that, then your worst case scenario changes. The low bar is raised. See, Martha is in her worst case scenario and one of the worst things that could ever happen to her is what she is going through and the hope that he offers is hope in himself, not in changed circumstances. Do you see that? And so if Jesus is offering her himself, then her her new worst case scenario, no matter what she faces in life, is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is is what's happening. Jesus becomes the new baseline for her in her life. If If he becomes your ultimate in life, if Jesus becomes that, then what's your new worst case scenario? It's that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's what the new baseline is. See, I often think we think of the, the highest good in our life or the thing that is most ultimate as this great thing that we pursue. But that thing that you pursue, that thing that you want, that you cherish more than anything in life, that's also your baseline. As long as you have that thing, then you're going to be all right. Then you're going to make it. That's not the worst thing anymore. I can put it to you this way. When I was in high school, I don't know why, I was really into my car Okay, I think everyone's into their car in high school. I had a forerunner. I had like subs in it and stuff. I thought that was cool, okay? I then got a car when I moved to California and it was, I loved it. I just thought, you know, this is the coolest thing. And truthfully, at that age, I was like, the worst case scenario in my life is that someone would take my car. I was like, yeah, I know that's like so petty comparing to what I'm talking about, but this is what I got, all right? And so that was like my worst case scenario. And my dad flew down to Southern California to see me and he picked me up in my car, he dropped me off at my campus and he went to the mall. He went and he bought a shirt, he walked out of the mall and the car was gone. My car was stolen. And so he called me up, he got a rented car, he picked me up and he took me to IHOP. I don't know why, he just took me to IHOP. We're sitting there at an IHOP and he's like, Josh, I am so sorry. Now, if this would have happened a year before, I would have been crushed, okay? But just months prior to this, I had met Jesus as the resurrection of life, and my life was dramatically changed. And let me tell you, he's like, Josh, I am so sorry. And in a very genuine way, I just looked at him, and I was like, that's fine. It doesn't matter. It's just a car. Why? Because my baseline had changed. It wasn't like a a pithy little statement. This isn't like something you put on a bumper sticker or you see on a coffee mug and you say, I believe that, but really when push comes to shove, you're like, eh, that's just a dumb statement. No, it's like a real like resting of my heart in this reality. My worst case scenario had changed. Jesus was the resurrection and the life for me. See, the circumstance like Martha's, it, it might not change, but the worst case scenario does and Jesus becomes her new baseline. So, so we see Jesus weep with Mary, and we see him comfort Martha with her perspective and belief, but then Jesus goes to Lazarus, to the dead man. 
And I want us to ask, how does Jesus respond to that which brings our greatest sorrow? And we're going to see this starting in verse 38. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus fights for us. He fights for us. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Now, I have to stop there because there is no translation in our English language that seems willing to kind of take the plunge here on what's happening, okay? Because you see this phrase in verse 33, and you see it again here in verse 38, this phrase, Jesus was deeply moved. And that doesn't mean that he was like, oh, man, this is hard. I'm really sad. That's not what this means. The word literally is translated, Jesus snorted like an animal, okay? Now you know why they don't translate into your English, because you'd read that and you're like, what in the world? Okay, that'd be really weird, right? So it means Jesus snorted like an animal. What that means is Jesus is coming to this tomb, not sad. He's coming to this tomb furious. Jesus is angry. He's angry. This will be on the screen, but uh, in, in John Calvin's commentary on this, John Calvin put it this way. He says, Jesus does not come to the tomb as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. I don't know if any of you have ever wrestled in here before. I never wrestled, never had a desire to, worked way too hard, okay? But your very own worship leader, uh, David Wiedenbacher, was once a world-class wrestler in the state of Iowa. I don't know if he's world-class, but he's world-class in our hearts, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, he might have been, okay? So in a sense, it's kind of like this image of David Wiedenbacher, you know? Like, you're ready to go to the mat, snorting like an animal, ready to take down his opponent. This is the image that you're supposed to have when you read what's going on here in this story. I mean, I mean, this is when, if you're writing, honestly, the soundtrack to the Gospel of John, this is when you would start playing the Rocky theme, be right here in verse 38. Like, this is intense. Jesus is angry, okay? And he's mad. But he's not mad like a stoic would be mad, saying, well, you know, death is inevitable. You just can't let it get to you, right? And he's not even doing the evangelical Christian thing, saying, well, I'm just, I'm just praising the Lord. You know, it's hard, but I'm just trusting in Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's mad, and he's mad at our enemy, the thing that brings our greatest sorrow, what is our main enemy, our greatest enemy? It's death. Death is that which brings our greatest sorrow. And he's about to take down death and pin it into submission. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, John wants you to know he was really dead. Said to him, Lord, uh, by this time there would be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Uh, see, it's really important to realize this, because this is the second time this has come up, this idea that he's been dead four days. Because the Jews had this um, sort of superstition that within the first three days that someone was buried in the tomb, the spirit would hover above the body. And so the fact that Jesus waited till day four was really important because it would rid itself of all the superstition that maybe the spirit just entered the person's body and that's why he was raised from the dead. This was a dead, dead man. And Martha knew this. And so when Jesus says, roll away the stone, she says, hey, it's going to stink. 
I'm sure, I don't know, maybe you're reading the King James Version here this morning. I haven't read it in a long time. I, I rarely ever read it, but it's really uh, hilarious here because Martha in the King James says, Jesus, it will stinketh, Jesus. And so uh, it stinketh, Jesus. I don't want to roll away the stone. And Jesus said, it won't stinketh, trust me, okay? <laughs> and he has this beautiful response to her starting in verse 40, okay? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you remember the beginning, the purpose of this whole thing? Remember? So that God's glory would be seen, okay? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let him go. Everyone who saw this happen saw the glory of God. The power of God in the face of Jesus. This will be on the screen. It was the best worded thing I read all week. Carson said this, death had no choice, for it had to obey Jesus' command. By the force of his command, Jesus released Lazarus from the cords of death. Like Moses who cried to Pharaoh, let my people go, Jesus commanded death to let go of Lazarus, and death had no choice but to give up. Jesus was the undisputed champion over death. If Jesus had a mic, he would have dropped it right there. Seriously, the most amazing thing everyone and everyone who saw this saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The glory of God was just on display. Look who Jesus is. Look at our God. Even death has no say over him. Uh, the eclipse happened in August. I don't know if you remember this. It's a pretty big deal. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life. And uh, I remember as a kid, people would always tell you, don't stare at the sun, Josh, it'll burn your eyes. And then you grow up and no one tells you that anymore. And apparently when an eclipse happens, people tell you that all the time, right? You have to wear these glasses so you don't burn your eyes, correct? You have to look at the sun through a filter or through a different lens. And you can do this even with greater things than the, the glasses that you probably wore during the eclipse. And there's things that you can look through. There's lenses, right? There's uh, uh, things that you can look through to stare at the sun even today and to see the sun in its greater beauty than what it looks like in just this bright light up in the sky. You can see its flames and, and all these different things, these burning flames when you stare at the sun. But you can't just stare at it. You have to look at it through a lens. What I'm saying is, is when you look at Jesus Christ, it's the same way. You are looking at the glory of God through the filter or the lens of human nature. Okay? And only there in Jesus can you see the absolute beauty of God. We, we see this in the face of Jesus. You want to know what God is like. You look at Jesus. And so we see here the power of God over death in the face of, Je of Jesus. And this is amazing. This is amazing. But there's a massive problem here. Because Jesus may have defeated Lazarus' death with a powerful word and a powerful snort, but Lazarus would go into the grave again someday. 
and there would be more tears, right? Everyone's tears would return. So how can Jesus defeat our greatest enemy once and for all? Well, the answer to that is he had to take the initial blow from death itself. See, Jesus had to die for us. See, the very end of the story, we read of Lazarus' resurrection. We just saw a stone was rolled away. There were, there were clothes that were left behind. And immediately after the story of Lazarus' return, we read there is a plot to kill Jesus as a result of this powerful display through Ra- Lazarus' resurrection. You see this plot beginning to take shape in verse 40, uh, 47. So Jesus knew He knew that raising Lazarus from the dead would be the equivalent of signing his own death sentence. He knew that. And so Jesus knew that the only way to get Lazarus out of the grave, ultimately, would be to have to go into the grave himself. Jesus knew that the only way to free Lazarus from the grave clothes would be to put the grave clothes on himself. And in the same way, Jesus knew that the only way to stop our funeral in life is to cause his own. He had to go to the cross. He had to pay his life for your life. Jesus knew that the only way he was going to save us is if the jaws of death closed on him like a vice. And unless that happened, we could not be saved. And so when he cries, Lazarus, come out, Jesus is signing his own death sentence, and he knows it. He knows this. See how these people, they looked at Jesus' tears when he cried with Mary, and they said, see how he loved Lazarus? But now, guys, we look to the cross, and we could say, wow, do you see how he has loved us? Jesus gave Lazarus tears, and he gives you this morning his cross and his empty grave. And by Jesus entering the grave for us and walking out three days later, not only does he defeat death itself, but he wins new life. He wins resurrection life for you. See, life wins over death, and resurrection comes always on the other side of the grave. That's how it works. And so now, what does that mean? Well, now that means that we don't need to fear death as our greatest sorrow anymore. Let me ask you, do you have that perspective this morning? Do you fear death? Or are you fearless in the face of it now? See, this story changes our perspective on death if Jesus is your resurrection in life. Uh, My kids uh, a while back showed me how badly they needed a new perspective, okay? Uh, there was one night where we were playing this game, and this game was basically this. It was very simple. I said, you cannot laugh, and I will not touch you, but I was going to act like I was going to tickle them, and I would get as close to them as possible, and I'd say, I'm not going to tickle you. I'm not going to tickle you, and they failed miserably every time. They would just start belly laughing, okay? And so I won. I won the game. And they said, all right, Dad, it's, it's our turn. And so they would try to do that to me, and I was just sitting there. I wasn't 
laughing or, at all, whatever. And they're like, all right, well, then uh, we're just going to see if we can make you laugh at all. And so they sat there and they started tickling my feet. And they said, Dad, you have to close your eyes. And so they're tickling my feet. My eyes are closed. And they're like, you're not laughing. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Actually, feels really good. And we're just enjoying this moment and everything. And all of a sudden, my eyes are closed. And I feel my socks come off. And I'm like, whatever. They're just trying to make it worse. And all of a sudden, I felt these warm tongues licking my feet. They were licking my feet. And of course, my eyes opened, right? And uh, at first, I'm like, what are you doing? That is the grossest thing in the world, right? Like, I think my own feet are gross, okay? They're licking my feet, and they're like, what? There wasn't no thing, right? Feet weren't gross to them or anything like that. And so I just start laughing, so they actually succeeded, right? I finally laughed, right? But they have, like all of us in this room, I can just tell by your response, right? They have a bad perspective. <laughs> they have a false perspective, right? Right? Uh, feet are gross. And we all know that, okay? We've all grown up. We've gained a different perspective. Something has happened in our life where our perspective has changed. See, when we read a story like this, it's kind of like we grow up a bit. We see what's actually true, we see that if death has no say over Jesus, and he's the ultimate, then I don't need to fear death anymore. My perspective should shift. See, death was our greatest enemy, and Jesus punched it in the throat, and he took it down. Death is no longer the end, guys. It's the beginning. So, so we should not live with this fear of death. But we often do, and it controls how we live and, and what we're willing to do for the sake of Jesus and his gospel in the world. And, and when it controls us, guys, it's, it's like we have this terrible perspective. It's like licking feet. It's a terrible perspective. And Jesus is inviting us this morning into fearlessness. The story gives us a new perspective to live our lives with. And you might be sitting here this morning, and you might be saying, well, I don't fear death. I don't fear death. Well, okay. Just listen to me for a second. If you ever get to the point in your life, if you ever get to the point in your life and you, it feels like death is coming sooner than you thought it was going to come. And if you get to that point, you say, oh my goodness, I've never gotten to here in my life or I've never gotten to there in my life or I should have, I've never got the career that I wanted or I never got as far in my career as I've wanted or maybe it's something like I've never seen the Alps before and I've always wanted to see the Alps or I'll never have a family or I'll never be married or something. Do you, do you know what that is? That's, a, that's fear of death. Because you see, death won't trump anything for you if you are in Jesus Christ. It won't. Jesus says, I am the life. It's in me. Don't say, oh, I'm dying now and I'll never see the Alps. Do you not think that there are mountains in God? You don't think there are infinitely more valuable and glorious things in God that will trump your awe than what you feel when you see majestic mountains? Do you not think there is family in God? Do you not think that there is love in God? that there's love infinitely greater than any spousal love that you can ever experience. I'm telling you, you're not gonna miss out on anything, nothing at all, because he is the resurrection and the life. So this morning, if you are a Christian, I really do, I want you to see, I want you to believe 
that in your sorrows that you experience in this world, Jesus mourns with you. He weeps with you. And some of you need to believe that this morning. You need to feel his presence with you. He hasn't abandoned you. And some of you need to hear the voice of Jesus ask you if you believe that he really is the resurrection and the life. You need to hear him wanting to direct your focus away from your sorrows and even away from your future hope and consolations that you're dreaming up and to see that he is enough for you in your present. And this morning, if you are here and if you are not a Christian, first of all, I am so glad you're here. I really hope you keep coming. And I pray that you hear the voice of Jesus this morning calling you out of the grave to believe in him as the resurrection and the life so that you could actually start living today a life that will never end and will only get sweeter. See, don't come into this room thinking that Christianity is primarily about making bad people good. It's not about that. It's not about even making sick people well. Christianity is about making dead people live. And that's what you see in this story. Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave and Lazarus came out. And after Jesus died on the cross three days later, God the Father called Jesus out of the grave and he came out and he never went back in again. Hear his voice calling you out of the grave this morning. He's calling you out. Father God, I do pray today that we wouldn't look at our life through our own eyes, but we would see Jesus, your sufficiency and your power and your victory over our death. God, I pray that you would make us fearless people. Jesus, I pray that you'd become our baseline and our highest good. So God, in this time, I pray that we would respond to you and your word and the way that you're calling us to respond. Lord, you know what we need. But more than anything, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just become the center of our life, the one that we, we yearn for and long for. Amen.